Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. My name is Shiva Mosevarian, and today we'll be discussing a topic that many of you may not be familiar with, juvenile spondy arthritis, or JSPA, and its relationship to psoriatic arthritis. Joining me for this discussion is pediatric rheumatologist Dr. Hema Srinivaslu, who is an associate professor of pediatrics at George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences and the program director of Pediatric Rheumatology Fellowship with the Division of Rheumatology at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Dr. Srinivaslu has a clinical and research interest in juvenile spondylarthritis. Joining her to provide a patient perspective are Wendy Osler, Asad Khan, and Amina Hamid. Wendy is a PhD student at the Eindhoven University of Technology in the Netherlands, where she focuses on the development of optimization models for faster and affordable access to treatments for rare diseases. Wendy was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis when she was 14 years old. Joining Wendy is Asad, a 16-year-old high school sophomore who lives in central New Jersey with his parents, two sisters, and three cats. His mother, Amina, is also here with us today. Asad was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis when he was nine years old. Both Wendy and Asad use biologics to treat their disease, which you'll learn more about soon. This episode is being brought to you by CAPES, Clinical and Patient Education Series, a joint collaboration with the National Psoriasis Foundation, GRAPA, Group for Research and Assessment of Psoriasis and Psoriatic Arthritis, Spartan, Spondylitis Research and Treatment Network, and the Spondylitis Association of America. This collaboration is intended to increase the awareness about the management of psoriatic arthritis and axial spondylar arthritis. Episodes will address why it occurs, management of pain and fatigue, treatment options, and the role of diet and exercise. This is the first in a series of four episodes. Additional episodes will be available in the fall. From time to time, MPF shares sponsored content that we think is a benefit to those with psoriatic disease. MPF encourages everyone living with psoriatic disease to work with their healthcare provider to find an appropriate treatment for them. MPF does not offer medical advice, and this podcast should not be considered an endorsement for any particular product or treatment. Welcome, Dr. Srinivaslu, Asid, Amina, and Wendy. Thank you so much for being here today to address juvenile spondyloarthritis. So, since some of our listeners may not be familiar with spondyloarthritis, Dr. Srinivaslu, can you please define what it is and how it relates to psoriatic arthritis? Of course. Thanks for the question. Juvenile spondyloarthritis is the pediatric counterpart of adult spondyloarthritis. So, if children develop features of spondyloarthritis before their 16th birthday, they're considered to have juvenile spondyloarthritis. It's best to understand juvenile spondyloarthritis as an umbrella term under which several forms of juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or what we commonly call JIA, reside. So these different subtypes are enthesitis-related arthritis, also called ERA, juvenile psoriatic arthritis, and also some forms of undifferentiated juvenile idiopathic arthritis as well. So in fact, we consider juvenile psoriatic arthritis as a form of juvenile spondyloarthritis. 
patients with juvenile spondyloarthritis may carry a gene called HLA-B27 gene, but it is important to note that this gene is neither confirmatory or required for the diagnosis. So if someone has HLA-B27 gene and no other clinical features, they don't necessarily have juvenile spondyloarthritis. On the contrary, someone can have juvenile spondyloarthritis even in the absence of this gene. Thank you so much for that explanation. So what are some of the unique features of juvenile spondyloarthritis and how prevalent is it? Thank you for the question. I'll start by answering about the prevalence first. The prevalence of juvenile spondyloarthritis varies depending on the geographic region and the population studied. In North America, the prevalence of juvenile idiopathic arthritis is around one per thousand children. Children with ERA account for 10 to 15 percent, and children with psoriatic arthritis account for around 10 percent of GIA. Hence, juvenile spondyloarthritis, which is a combination of ERA and psoriatic arthritis, in total is around 20 to 25 percent. So the prevalence comes up to around one in 4,000 to 5,000 children. So as you can imagine, this is a good chunk of children affected with this condition. Now coming to the unique features of this condition, the sites of our musculoskeletal system where the tendons and ligaments get attached to bones are called enthesis. One of the characteristic features of spondyloarthritis is inflammation at the site, which we call enthesitis. Patients can also have arthritis, they can have arthritis in the peripheral joints, like in the elbow or ankle, knee, etc. And they can also have inflammation in the spine, which we call axial spondyloarthritis. Now, the axial inflammation generally begins first in the sacroiliac joints. So these are the pair of joints in the pelvis that sit just above the buttocks. And that can be the first sign of axial inflammation in many patients. Patients who carry the HLA-B27 gene are at higher risk of developing this axial inflammation. Patients with juvenile spondyloarthritis are also at higher risk of developing inflammation in the eye, which we call acute anterior uveitis. I would like to add a few points specifically about juvenile psoriatic arthritis. Now, children with psoriatic arthritis show up in two ways, depending upon the age of the patient. The very young children, specifically like preschoolers, mainly tend to be females. They can have arthritis. They can have swelling of their entire digits, which we call sausage digits. And they are at a higher risk of developing inflammation in the eye, which can be quite silent. Whereas if children develop psoriatic arthritis in older age, such as in the teenage years, the disease behaves much like adult psoriatic arthritis. And the difference here lies in the presence of psoriatic skin rash, they can have inflammation in the sacroiliac joints and they also have enthesitis. So, Asad and Wendy, given what Dr. Srinivasalu just said, when did you first realize something wasn't right and that you needed to see a rheumatologist such as Dr. Srinivasalu? So, in my case, I began having a lot of pain in my bigger joints, so in my hips and my elbows. I was actually just in a lot of pain and tired all the time. I remember that I was on a holiday and I just didn't want to do anything but just lay on the couch and not walk. So at that moment, I knew something was not right. So for me, my first memories are on the age of four. I don't remember being in pain, but I do remember being in a hospital, getting a steroid injection in my knee. And so after that, the pain basically stopped until I was around nine years old. And when it started back up again, 
it was so bad that I could barely get up in the mornings. And so that was when we knew that I needed to be treated. For us, and from what I remember, we probably saw signs as early as the age of two, but we didn't quite figure out what exactly was going on. But he started limping his right leg. He would drag it a bit. But again, nothing really was diagnosed at that point. Asad needed physical therapy on and off. And then, like Asad mentioned, at the age of four, he just exerted himself one day. But the next day, he stopped walking and was just crawling around everywhere, which was really scary to see. And then at that point, he had went for some testing and they saw that there was some fluid in his knee. So he ended up getting a steroid injection that sort of calmed the flare for a couple of years until at the age of nine, it came back full force. And Dr. Srinivasulu, is what Asad and Wendy shared typical symptoms that you tend to see with spondyloarthritis? How can features and symptoms differ in a child versus an adult? Yeah, thank you, Asad and Wendy, for sharing your experience. This is something similar to what we actually see in clinical practice also. Children tend to have more arthritis in the beginning, like how Wendy mentioned. And it's interesting how Asad's mom commented upon him having to drag his legs in the morning. So one thing to realize is that children may or may not even know that they are perceiving pain at a very young age, especially. And pain may not be a presenting feature at all. It may be more like they are slow to get up in the mornings or they are limping. Those are subtle signs that we look for when evaluating patients for arthritis. And the presentation that Assad has had is something that we have seen in the sense it starts off very early in life with just one or two joints, and then they're quiet for many years, and then it evolves into a full-fledged spondyloarthritis. Now, talking about the features and symptoms that differ in a child versus an adult, there are a couple salient differences. One is that while in adults, it's well established that if they have inflammation in the spine, they have low back pain and stiffness in the morning, what we define as inflammatory back pain, but children may not have that. Children could, in fact, have inflammation in the spine going on in the absence of any low back pain. And this is what we term silent sacroiliitis. And like I already mentioned, children tend to have more arthritis in the joints that Wendy and Asad mentioned, like the knee joint, the elbow, ankle, and so on. There is a unique form of eye inflammation that occurs in children with JIA, which we call chronic idiopathic uveitis. This contrasts with another form of uveitis that occurs in those who carry the HLA-B27 gene, and that's called acute anterior uveitis. While acute anterior uveitis can occur in both children and adults, the chronic idiopathic uveitis is something that's very unique to children. And Dr. Srinivasulu, as a child ages, will such features and symptoms change? That's a very good question. Yes, they can change. So children can initially present with peripheral arthritis, and then over time, they may develop inflammation in the spine. And one more important concept to also remember is that even though we label some children as having psoriatic arthritis, they may not have to have the psoriatic skin rash when they are diagnosed with that. So initially, they may have arthritis and they may develop psoriasis later on in life. And sometimes children can start off as having mainly arthritis and later may develop gut inflammation. 
which can evolve into full-fledged inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Thank you so much. So for Ossid and Amina, I'm curious, what was your path to diagnosis like? So for me, when I was around nine is when the intensity of the pain hit full force. So I was unable to get up from my bed because of the severe pain. I would have to wake up early to give me extra time to get ready and slowly attempt to make my way to school. Every step was a struggle and the walk that I used to be able to do so easily to the school building felt so much further than I'd ever had before. So the days that I was able to get to school, I would have to sit in the back of the class with a heating pad because the heat helped the pain. And my parents and I started to learn that the more I walked around, the more the pain would go away. So every day before school, we would go early and I would just walk back and forth in the parking lot until the pain was not as bad. So during that time, we started to see a lot of doctors and none of them had the answers until we found a rheumatologist and then got diagnosed there. So just to add on, like Asad mentioned, it was very hard to see him struggling and in so much pain. So we definitely knew that he needed to be seen. We went to orthopedics, we went to neurology, and then rheumatology. Once we found our rheumatologist, the process became so much easier to act once we actually got the diagnosis. And after that, it felt so much smoother going forward. And Wendy, can you tell us a little bit about your path to diagnosis? Was it different from what we heard from Osid? Well, actually, my path to diagnosis has a lot of similarities because I also saw a lot of specialists like a pediatrician and multiple orthopedists, but none of them diagnosed me. They even told me that I was too young to have a, like a form of arthritis. And after more than two years of visiting hospitals, I finally found a rheumatologist who diagnosed me because of the joint cartilage of my hip that was already broken down due to all the flares that I had. So it was actually a major relief that after those years, I finally got my diagnosis. Yeah, I bet. I mean, it's so interesting hearing your perspectives on all of this, and I'm so thankful you're here with us today. So, Dr. Srinivasalu, are there any diseases that could mimic some of the symptoms found in juvenile spondylarthritis, arthritis, which can make it difficult to confirm a diagnosis? Yes, there are several conditions that can mimic the symptoms that children with juvenile spondylarthritis arthritis can present with. Children with predominantly enthesitis may be initially misdiagnosed as having mechanical issues. And these mechanical issues are very common at that age. Some examples are conditions such as Sievers disease, where they have pain in their heel, or something called Oshkutschlater disease, where they have pain below their kneecap. And similarly, there's another condition called sending larsen johansson which is a form of inflammation of the kneecap itself. So they'll have tenderness at the kneecap. So they will experience pain especially when doing activities like going up and down the stairs or riding bikes and things like that. So it's not uncommon for children to first present to an orthopedic doctor or even a sports medicine physician, and they even undergo several rounds of physical therapy and several other interventions before they get to rheumatology. And for children who have back pain, this is not the first condition that comes to mind. So they are other conditions that can cause back pain, such as spondylolysis, spondylolisthesis. These are all orthopedic conditions. So it's not uncommon for children to be first referred to orthopedics and then to undergo additional imaging studies where they don't identify any of these conditions and then they are referred to rheumatology. So patients with juvenile spondyloarthritis often have a delay in diagnosis because of their convoluted path to the rheumatologist. 
especially so for females, because there is this misconception that spondyloarthritis only happens in males. And females, when they present with the same kind of symptoms, are often mislabeled as having chronic pain or fibromyalgia, for example. So how critical is it to obtain the right diagnosis and begin a treatment plan? And what could happen if the treatment is delayed? So Wendy's example is on point to impress upon the importance of prompt treatment. Patients with Juna's spondyloarthritis who have hip joint involvement may be at risk for joint replacement later on in life. One of the goals of arthritis treatment is to prevent long-term joint damage. So obviously, if we make the diagnosis early on, we can potentially prevent the joint damage. And also patients who have untreated sacroiliitis are at risk of inflammation that may ascend up the spine. It's also important to note that children who have juvenile spondyloarthritis suffer from more pain and poor quality of life compared to any other form of juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Hence, initiating early treatment may potentially help with improving pain, but also improving function in these children. So, Asit and Wendy, can you share what treatment options you've tried? Did you have any treatment preferences or hesitancy to try one in particular? A lot of the times we hear from people who prefer not to use injectables, such as biologics, for example. So for me, it's been pretty much straightforward. I've been taking Humira since the beginning of my treatment, one injection every two weeks. And at some point, methotrexate was also added as well. And basically that combination has been working well, no issues since we started. That's great that you have just one treatment because mine was actually very different. I had so many treatment options, I lost count and track of all the treatments that I tried, unfortunately. I also did a lot of biologics and they did not work for a very long time, each of them. But I'm very happy that I now got a biologic that works. So fingers crossed that it will work for a longer time than the others did. And as Asad's mom, early on when he was first diagnosed and the idea of him being on medication, taking injects every two weeks, we were a little nervous and when you read side effects and we were just worried as parents that this is something long-term that he would need to take. However, the more we discussed it with Asad's physician, the more comfortable we felt and the more confident we felt about going forward. And then seeing the results of him taking it and what a difference it made in his overall life, we felt that this is absolutely something that he needs and will continue to use. And it's been helping him on so many different levels. Thank you so much for sharing. I mean, Asit, it's wonderful that you had such a great response with your treatment. Did you have any challenges that you encountered along your treatment journey? So overall, I didn't have too many hiccups along the way. There was one incident where I developed uveitis, which is inflammation in the eye. And so I had to get treated with eye drops for a few weeks, but luckily it was only one time. And aside from that, I think one other thing that has and always will be something I need to work on is my range of motion, stretching, being able to touch my toes, like flexibility. And I know that's something I should always try to work on because I don't want to have issues down the road as I get older. And Wendy, have you encountered similar challenges? Yeah, so I think the hardest challenge was really the side effects of all those biologic treatments and other treatments that I tried. I mean, some treatments actually made me very nauseous and they were not really good for me to take. And then sometimes at a certain point, it's really annoying if another treatment does not work and then you try a new one and then that one also doesn't work. 
then you hope that there's something that actually will work, but there's not an unlimited amount of treatments. So yeah, that was really a bit of a challenge, but I'm really hopeful for the future now. As are we. And Dr. Srinivasulu, are the treatments shared by Austin and Wendy typical of a treatment plan for juvenile spondyloarthritis? Are there any precautions you can share when considering treatment choices? Yes, the treatments shared by Assad and Wendy are pretty typical. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory are one of the first medications that we start patients on. And depending upon where their inflammation is, like for example, if they have mostly inflammation in their joints, like the knee joint, ankle joint, etc., we do start non-biologic first, such as methotrexate or sulfasalazine. And these are some of the medications that Wendy probably tried that you had nausea with. And sometimes if there are only a few joints that are involved, we can also get by by doing steroid injections into the joints. That will help us buy some time. However, if patients are requiring many joint injections over the course of years, that's obviously not a sustainable option. If children have inflammation in their sacroiliac joints, then we move pretty quickly to biologics. TNF inhibitors are some of the most common biologics that are tried, and Asad, you are on one of them right now. But also, it's important to recognize that there are a good chunk of patients who may not respond to a first TNF inhibitor or even a second one or even a third one, and we do need better options of biologics that are not TNF inhibitors for difficult-to-treat arthritis such as Wendy's. In regards to uh, precautions, there are a couple that I would like to share. One is when you start off on this journey, please be mindful of where you're gathering your information from. Uh, Go for reliable sources on the internet, such as professional organizations, such as the NPF, for example. Avoid individual blogs as the sole source of information because it's going to be very biased. If someone is scientifically savvy, you could look up literature on PubMed, but it's not required. Just having an honest conversation with your physician as to what the treatment options are, what the risks and benefits are, would be helpful. And it's important to understand that no treatment is completely free of risk of side effects. So it's important to weigh the potential or small risk of the treatment versus the certainty of pain and decreased function. And if you are scared about something, please share that with your physician. Ongoing dialogue with your physician, sharing your fears and concerns will help in choosing the appropriate treatment for your child based on shared decision making. And are there any new treatments in the pipeline or exciting research in the field of juvenile spondyarthritis that you can share with us? Yes, there are several, and I'm only going to highlight some of them. Some researchers are studying the role of microbiome in juvenile spondyloarthritis. There are researchers who are also trying to understand the role of genes other than the HLA-B27 gene. In terms of like diagnosis, better ways of assessing inflammation in the body with the use of whole body MRI are also currently being studied. In terms of treatment, there is increased recognition, like I mentioned, that patients need more treatment options. While TNF inhibitors are most effective in treatment of inflammation of the sacroiliac joints, like I mentioned, many patients don't respond to that, and hence we need newer medications beyond the anti-TNF agents. Very recently, the FDA approved secukinumab for both enthesitis-related arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. There are currently studies ongoing looking into role of JAK inhibitors, for example, in juvenile spondyloarthritis. This would be something exciting to look forward to because the JAK inhibitors are a group of medications that are actually administered by mouth 
versus many of these other biologics are either shots or IV infusions. Thank you so much. And we're so excited to keep tabs on this. And we hope you can come back to give us some updates in the future. So Wendy, Asit, and Amina, how have your lives changed after your diagnosis of spondyloarthritis? What are you most thankful for? Wendy, we can start with you. Well, my life actually changed a lot. I had to make different decisions. So for instance, I did different type of sports before. So I did running, but now I'm doing swimming instead. And I also need to plan a bit better because I don't have the energy to do everything. And yeah, the thing I am actually most thankful for is meeting all other patients with spondyloarthritis, like you said. It's very special to be able to share such specific things that nobody else can understand. Yeah, definitely. And for me, I think it's definitely changed my life a lot. Like I'm able to walk on freely without any pain whatsoever. I can keep up with activities that my friends can do. If we want to go biking, we can go biking. If we want to play tennis, we can do tennis. So I can basically keep up with other kids now. And that's just what I'm really grateful for. It's so inspiring to hear all of your stories. So Asid, Amina, and Wendy, do you have any final message you'd like to share with our listeners today? Yeah, so I think it's actually that you're not alone in experiencing this. And it's always okay to ask for help if you need it. And just remember to always stay positive because there's always a solution to these problems. So when I had this pain, I didn't expect it to go away. And I think to myself, like, am I going to have to live with this for the rest of my life? But then I came across these doctors who solved the problem for me and basically showed me the light at the end of the tunnel. So just have faith and stay positive. And just to add, like Wendy mentioned, it's so helpful to share experiences and you find comfort in people who are going through similar experiences and talk to different families. There's so much you learn by talking to others and communicating. So definitely it's nice to find support with those that are going through similar circumstances. Yeah, it's such a good point. I know everyone listening today is going to be so moved by hearing your stories and just knowing that they're not alone. So Thank you from the bottom of my heart, from me and the MPF for being here with us today and sharing your stories. I know it's going to touch a lot of people, so thank you. And Dr. Srinivasalu, do you have any final messages you'd like to share with our listeners today? Sure. I would like to end by saying think positive, be positive, and just remember that you're not alone in this journey. Thank you, Dr. Srinivasalu, Wendy, Austin, and Amina for your insights and perceptions of what it means to live with juvenile spondyloarthritis. You can find more information about juvenile spondyloarthritis through the Spondylitis Association of America at spondykids.org. Join us again for the next CAPES episode of September when we address a common issue for anyone with arthritis, pain, and fatigue. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Sound Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Ghana, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.